What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line, as always, by Michael the Pod Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, the entire world is watched in rapt attention Sunday night as The Last Dance, ESPN's 10-part documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls premiered. Uh, the first two episodes, I think, basically dominated Twitter for hours straight. And we got a very excited question right off the top about the program from Carrie. Carrie writes, how did everyone watch The Last Dance? I was wearing my favorite Jordans, and I took out my unopened Space Jam Michael Jordan doll. Good thing my wife can't go outside <laughs> or she'd leave me. Carrie, awesome email. Um, I can relate to Carrie's nostalgia, Michael. I got to say, I mean, I spent a, a good chunk of Sunday digging through the crates, pulling out every single old Michael Jordan jersey. I found one from seventh grade, a, a little black champion jersey. I could lose another 50 pounds on my diet uh, weight loss plan, Michael. Still not fit into that thing. Um, you know, found some real deep cuts, different all-star jerseys and everything else. Um, and then, you know, I, I went through the old Jordan 11 collection and, and kind of pulled out some you know, various colorways, kind of arranged them. You know, basically, I did it for the gram, you know, and, and I wasn't the only one. I saw dozens of people on Instagram and Twitter just short of, sort of, you know, showing their own, uh, you know, Jordan memorabilia collection. You know, some people were breaking out basketball cards and, and clothing and everything else. Um, how about you, Michael? Did this, uh, you know, trip down memory lane for the last dance, did it inspire you to get dressed up in a certain way? Has it inspired you to uh, dig out old articles? I know I've got some, you know, really old Sports Illustrated covers from the 90s with Jordan on them. Uh, are you tapping this itch too? I think that for sure I'm in the Michael Jordan vibe. It feels like he took over my every timeline I have on social media. I mean, I can only imagine the shrine that you have in your apartment. You probably have a room dedicated to Michael Jordan sneakers, jerseys, no, 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 posters. No. You're close, Michael, but not quite right because you said there's a shrine in my apartment. Actually, my apartment is just a shrine. Okay, of course, it's not. Yes. There's not like a certain corner of it or anything. Um, no, you know, I don't have a ton of room here. I used to have. Have you ever seen the old Sports Illustrated cover, A Star is Born in 1984, and it's like the super young MJ, like two months into his NBA career, he's hanging midair for a shot. Um, I had that like blown up and framed because that was one, uh, you know, piece of like, you know, somewhat passable, I guess you want to call it artwork that wouldn't be completely embarrassing if strangers came over to see. Um, but other than that, I actually have, uh, I would say, you know, I'm not going to say I have adult interior because it's a lot of Legos and, and panoramic photos that I've printed out, but uh, <laughs> maybe I've I've grown slightly uh, out of the, the man-boy stage. No, that's that, that that's wonderful for you. Um, I can only expect the best. I I mean, I have, I, don't, I do not have as much memorabilia, Michael Jordan memorabilia as you do. Uh, I have... I would say maybe a dozen pairs of Jordans right now, which I guess is a lot to some, but to others. Oh, that's a is, lot. Yeah, that's, I think some people would think that's a pathetically low number, but I've been, you know, every time I get a pair, I'm very excited. The ones are my favorite. I know the 11s are your favorite, I believe. Um, Will you be wearing them as you're watching? Or like, did you, have you like picked out the sneaker? Because I think it's amazing. That's such a personal touch point for people. It's like, oh, I'm going to watch Michael Jordan on TV. I better put on my shoes. It's like the Be Like Mike thing in action 30 years ago. Of course. Later. Of course. Yeah. No, one of the greatest like parts of, of growing up with the name Mike was Michael Jordan. So uh, Be Like Mike, a, a advertisement campaign that was directly targeted towards 
literally me, uh, made me feel very special. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I just said that the ones are my favorite Jordans, but the, the, the sneakers that I own that like, or when I should say when I most like the, the sneakers that remind me of Michael Jordan and actually watching him play the most are the twelves, the flu games. So I do have a pair of those, uh, red and black. They're very chunky. We've talked about this before on the pod. And so I don't wear them very often, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to wear those, uh, throughout me watching the doc. Um, I should, yeah, I should say off the top that I did not watch along with the rest of America and the world last night because uh, my wife goes to bed very early. I don't want to call her out, but I just did. She goes to bed pretty early on, on Sunday nights and weeknights. And so I really wanted to, to watch the whole thing with her. So we DVR'd it and we're going to dive in tonight. We're recording this on a Monday tonight. So I'm, I'm very, very excited. Look, the bottom line is the next time you and your wife get into an argument, you have the all-time haymaker of arguments because you could be like, look, I put the most anticipated <laughs> sports documentary on hold. I didn't want to watch it with the entire world. I wanted to watch it with you. And honestly, if you, Michael, if you ever do one of those things where you renew your vows and like go and have a second wedding, <laughs> I feel like that is the vow. It's like I literally put you ahead of the entire sports universe during the Michael Jordan viewing experience. But hey, look, it's okay because uh, I think our plan here is, is going to be, at least for this episode, we don't want to spoil anything in the first two episodes because I do understand especially for global audiences, you know, watching on Netflix. I mean, there may be a little bit of a delay in terms of when they can get to it. And we don't want to spoil this thing, you know, completely. So we're going to save our real last dance conversation uh, for the episode that will go up on uh, Friday. And I think today what we're going to do, Michael, is we got some awesome questions from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And basically, I've been sitting on these questions. It's like a treasure trove of questions. Just like Michael Jordan was sitting on that behind-the-scenes footage for like 20 years before he decided to finally release it. <laughs> so we're going to get into these. I know I've been teasing them for a few days now, but uh, we're going to get into these uh, starting with uh, actually one Jordan question. Brandon from LA wants to know, what if Jordan never retired in 1998 and instead he became a free agent in the summer? Which team back in 98 would Jordan have decided to sign with and why? In my mind, it would have come down to four teams, the Heat or the Magic in the East, or the Rockets and Kings in the West. Do you guys like any of these choices for MJ? So I think what Brandon was trying to do was, you know, find some core teams that might have had some other pieces that where if, if Jordan went to, instantly they wind up becoming kind of title contenders. And I think that would be the most logical thing for the best player in basketball to want to go into a kind of a ready-made situation at that point of his career. But I'll, I'll be honest, this is not a question I had ever even considered, Michael, before Brandon asked it. So what do you think? I mean, this is really tough. Uh, forget about like the, the cap situation and going to figure out who had the actual space and availability to sign Michael Jordan. I think that you can just cross out so many different teams right off the top because this man would have never played with certain players. And I couldn't imagine him like lessening his ego to team up with like to go to the Knicks or any team that he had a real rivalry with, even if they had a shot at winning a championship, I find it really difficult to kind of imagine that. So, I mean, like, I, I like the teams, I think, that uh, are mentioned here for the most part. I don't really know why the Magic are, are on the list. Um, that one is a little interesting. But 
I do think that the Heat could potentially be a possibility. Then again, there's Pat Riley there, and obviously there were there were serious battles between Michael Jordan and Pat Riley through the 90s and playing for him. I don't know if that could have ever happened. Um, one team that I think would be really interesting, I have a few here, but the Portland Trailblazers could be really oh, funny. <laughs> you're going to make it good 15 years later after the draft, huh? Yeah. Uh, I mean, a year after this, Scottie Pippen goes there. So he just beat Scottie Pippen to Portland. I don't think a lot of people remember this, but that Portland team in 99, the lockout year, they went all the way to the Western Conference Finals where they were swept by the San Antonio Spurs. So they were already pretty good. They didn't really have anyone at Michael Jordan's position that he couldn't, you know, take their minutes, take their shots. I mean, that that was a young Rasheed Wallace team, Damon Stoudemire, Brian Grant was a a big figure on that team. So I, uh, I think Portland would be really interesting. What do you think about them? Well, I think I got a bunch of thoughts and I sort of have a cop out answer here. I think my answer is I can't see him signing for any team uh, in that (laughs) situation. And obviously that's how it played out. But I think that your point on, is he going to really want to join somebody else's organization, right? Is he going to go to a situation where he actually feels like he has the power and influence that he was able to kind of cultivate and build up uh, in Chicago? Are there going to be the right personalities and egos? And I think that's kind of an underrated part of Jordan's career is that he, I mean, he ultimately wanted to win on his own terms, right? And he was trying to push the levers of power and uh, constant friction with Jerry Krause, as as some people saw in the first couple episodes. Um, But he wanted to do it on his terms with his people, his way. And he certainly wanted to do it with Phil Jackson. I mean, that part was like, you know, a a line in the sand for Michael Jordan. He did not want to play for any other coach at that point of his career besides Phil. So uh, from that standpoint, uh, it's pretty hard to envision. I would say this. He probably wanted to stay east, though, right? I mean, if you're looking at the rising dynasties at that time with the Spurs and the Lakers, you know, <laughs> so Mike, can I, Michael can I, being so calculating. I mean, don't you think he would want to stay in the Eastern Conference? No, I mean, so like right off the jump, two of the teams that I have on my list are the Spurs and the Lakers because like the Lakers are just interesting because if he's thinking about, you know, market size and I guess legacy, oh, Shaq, my gosh. Shaq is you, there. Can you imagine David Stern? What's the famous line? David Stern thought the dream finals was Lakers versus Lakers. Can you imagine <laughs> if it was Jordan's Lakers versus Jordan's Lakers? No, it's, it would be a dream come true um, for the NBA's uh, the NBA league office. Uh, well, I, I, let me let me ask you though on the Spurs side, could sure. Popovich have coached Jordan? How would that have gone? So this is pre, I mean, this is, you got to go back in time and be like, Greg Popovich has no championships. So I'm sure he was a very confident man. But the year before, I believe, right when he took over, because he came in as the GM, fired the head coach and then named himself head coach that year. Um, You know, fans were like calling for Greg Popovich's head, which I don't think a lot of people remember either. So I don't think that his ego would have been up to the point where he's, you know, uh, trying to mold Michael Jordan in any one particular way. I could be wrong, but that did, it just it's tough to go back in time and and see where people are in their lives and try to adjust uh, with hindsight. No, it's a great point because when Michael Jordan really first formed his bond with Phil Jackson, neither one of them had won, right? Mm-hmm. And now Jordan, at the end of his career, is he really going to accept coaching from a a guy in Popovich who has never won anything? Um, That part would certainly be a hiccup. Uh, I think there's no way around it. It's almost like if if Phil goes to L.A., maybe Michael decides to go to L.A. too. But 
I mean, this is all kind of just, you know, a fun and, and uh, you know, sporty conversation. It's difficult to see Jordan in any situation where the whole thing isn't already built around him. And I think that's one reason why when he did come back and he goes to a franchise with the Wizards, I mean, the idea there was that he was going to be able to get even more influence, right? Like the the whole deal with him potentially having an ownership stake and all that stuff. Um, I, I think that, that that part was of such high importance to him that just trying to imagine him slicing a different destination in free agency is a little bit unrealistic, especially coming off the, the height of those three titles. But let's also not underrate, you know, his humanity here, his exhaustion factor. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. You know, mm-hmm. he ran himself into the ground after the first three-peat, definitely ran himself into the ground after the second three-peat. And it does make you wonder, like, do you think modern sports scientists could have got through to Jordan on the idea of load management in any way? I, I mean, I realize it's like kind of anathema to him, but if they could kind of explain like, look, dude, especially after the first retirement, if they could just be like, look, you're getting a little bit older. We understand you only know how to, one way how to play, but you're going to be right back where you were in terms of retirement. Don't you want to keep playing this game for as long as possible? Is there any way they could have uh, navigated that conversation? <laughs> I think when we talk about load management with Michael Jordan, it's super interesting because, you know, uh, from, I believe, his first title year in 91, he plays 82, then he plays 80, 78, and then in the three years with the second three-peat, he does not miss a basketball game in the regular season. goes 82, 82, 82, which is just, like, unheard of uh, in the modern game. I The thing about it, though, is, like, he did use load management, and it was called minor league baseball. So, like, he had the year off. Like, I think that that could be a huge, uh, a, a huge sticking point in the argument. If you're like, hey, you did play all 82 and everything, and it was exhausting, but you would not have been able to do that if you did not take years off from from playing the game at a high level. So I think that would be used in the argument, but I just, I, at the end of the day, I don't know how successful any of it would have been. And I, I mean, it's like us thinking about where he would have gone besides retirement. I, I just, it's really difficult to, to pick a team. I, I, I think, as you said, none of these are good answers. Like the other answer I had was, like the reason I picked the, the Spurs is because I think Jordan would have had to have chosen a team that was already propped up, prepared to win a championship and contend for a championship. That team is one of them. And obviously, you know, Tim Duncan could have been what he thought Kwame Brown was going to be in Washington potentially as well. So that would <laughs> yeah. have been that would have People been really say that about Tim Duncan, just sort of a supersized <laughs> Kwame Brown, don't they? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we should just kind of tie off this conversation with this idea. Like if your hope was to convince Jordan of anything, good luck, right? Whether it's load management mm-hmm. or, you know, come sign with my team in free agency or whatever else. I mean, good luck. Uh, he was going to do whatever he wanted to do on his terms. All right, we're going to shift gears here to a question from Thaddeus. He writes, I know the NBA is trying to plan out ways to restart and finish the year. There's a lot of timetables and proposals floating around. It seems obvious that there won't be fans in attendance, and the players will probably have to quarantine away from families for a time to speed rush through some sort of playoff. I think the biggest logistical question right now is where do you do it? To me, the answer is kind of obvious, Vegas. Forget any question about practice and game facilities, travel logistics, Let's just Occam's razor this. Who is in Las Vegas right now? Nobody. It isn't a place where corporations tend to have hubs. There aren't any conventions, no shows, no boxing events. Casinos are closed. It's basically this city built on tourism and events that right now has 
no tourism or events. Shouldn't the casinos be all in on housing and spacing out NBA teams and the people needed to run them? So he raises a great point uh, in terms of Vegas's availability. I can imagine the Nevada Chamber of Commerce is thrilled with Thaddeus, uh, you know, for this. It's like, <laughs> thanks, man. You know, you're, you're fighting the good fight on our behalf. I bring up this question mainly just to give a quick digest of what NBA Commissioner Adam Silver said on Friday. Now, he had a Board of Governors meeting and they did a uh, a call, a press conference uh, afterwards by conference call. And I cannot uh, overstate how cautious Adam Silver was in his tone. I mean, he basically laid it out straightforward. The NBA has no timeline whatsoever for a return to play. They have no cutoff date in terms of when they need to decide if they're going to play the regular season or the playoffs this summer. They are still, as he described, kind of in fact-finding mode about the virus itself. Um, And then he also said on top of everything that they have not seriously explored any of the bubble scenarios in terms of trying to set up something like that, as he's describing in Las Vegas, to this point. To me, when you combine that information with the actions, which uh, were withholding a portion of player paychecks here, uh, you know, 25% uh, going forward, you know, starting uh, in May 15th, I think that will uh, sort of sound an alarm, right? If they're already making financial preparations for the season not to happen, and they haven't taken any meaningful steps forward yet towards trying to assemble some sort of a postseason, uh, to me, you can kind of read between those lines and see which direction this is starting to go, uh, you know, down the road. The other thing that Adam Silver said very forcefully, they are not going to compromise on player safety in basically any way, right? They want to make sure, and if they do want to come back to play, they want to sure, make sure that the case counts in terms of the coronavirus uh, cases across the country are going down. They want to make sure there's widespread availability of testing. They want to make sure that potentially it would be great if there was a vaccine. They want to know the status of the vaccine as they're kind of weighing their decision on when to play in front of fans again. Um, And then they also want to make sure that they're not stressing medical resources that should be, uh, you know, going towards hospitals and and other peoples of greater need, right? So if those are his conditions and his, his major takeaway statement is, we're going to basically make this decision by the data rather than by the date. In other words, he's not just circling a day on the calendar and saying, that's when I want to be back. I think that reality should be starting to set in for all of us here that basketball could be a ways off. I don't really have too much more to add to this. I think you you really covered it. Um, as Dr. Fauci has said multiple times, the virus dictates the timeline and the NBA understands that, which is really good. Uh, I just don't know. I mean, Thaddeus's email, uh, it makes sense to me where he's coming from in selecting Las Vegas as this basically like test site where you could quarantine players in uh, hotels and casinos and everything. And I, I guess in theory, that makes sense. But unless there's a vaccine available to everyone, and unless everyone is taken or has access to an antibody test, which lets you know if you've already had it, and if you're immune, which by the way, uh, like, uh, we're not even 100% if you have already had it, what your immunity levels are and how the the virus is, is mutating last I read about it. So um, I, I just think, as you said, we are 
it's increasingly looking like we are more and more a ways away from actually seeing basketball played, which is really unfortunate and really sad, but that's just the reality of of the, the day that we live in right now. For sure. And on a slightly more, you know, brighter and optimistic note, Adam Silver also on his press conference told people like four times to watch the last dance. So I have a feeling he might have been in some uh, flu game 12s too, Michael, (laughs) in his apartment watching that thing come together. Uh, A little known uh, note uh, by some, maybe people have heard this lately, but he was the head, Adam Silver was, of NBA Entertainment at the time, uh, 97, 98, when they decided to pursue this project uh, with, you know, the behind the scenes footage of Michael Jordan and those and those Bulls. So Adam Silver's fingerprints in kind of an invisible way are all over the last dance. And I'm sure there's a certain level of pride and, uh, you know, the feeling like, oh, man, I nailed this one now that he's watching it 22 years later. (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine, Michael, we were talking about our biggest draft hits and our biggest draft misses. Imagine if you were the guy who was like, oh, yeah, let's greenlit or greenlight a uh, behind the scenes documentary about the Bulls. And then you wait two decades and now you get to see it during a quarantine. That's got to feel pretty good, right? That would be glorious. I mean, that's a grand slam for Adam Silver. If anyone's winning the day, it's him right now. For sure. All right, we got another question, another lighter note here from Sam, and he's in Brighton, uh, England. He writes, I'm a new listener to the podcast. I've always been a casual basketball fan, but the coronavirus lockdown has given me the chance to take my casual fan status to a whole new level, and your excellent podcast has been a big part of that. Why, thank you, Sam. He continues, during the quarantine, I've been spending some quality time with the NBA 2K series, and it's amazing to me how many of the game's all-time legends wear number 32 on their jersey. Is there any reason for this? I live in Europe, and soccer is the main sport. I'm actually a coach, so I can wax lyrical about the significance of the number 7 jersey or why all the most gifted players wear 10, but this part of basketball folklore is very mysterious to me. Why 32? I'd love to hear your thoughts and if there are any other numbers that hold particular significance. Sam, it's a great question. Michael, what is your explanation for Sam's question? And by the way, I I don't know about you, but I don't know what your volleyball number was, but I was actually number seven as a high school soccer player. So it brought a smile to my face that, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, calling out number sevens all around the world. Anyway, um, what is your explanation for 32, Michael? Hey, I was number seven too in volleyball. Wow. Yeah. Look at that. Wow. And middle middle school football too, man. Seven is a great number. Can't beat it. Okay. Well, we're not going to encourage anyone to play middle school football here, okay? We, <laughs> we protect uh, the brain cortexes out there. Anyway. Yes, indeed. Um, 32, number, how we feel? Yeah, number 32. Uh, I mean, I did a little bit of research here, and I, <laughs> I could not find why exactly. I mean, this might be just obvious, and I'm, I'm blipping here, but I, I did not... I was not able to find out why exactly Magic Johnson wore number 32. There are a lot of other great players who wore it after him, and some even before. You know, Bill Walton wore 32. Shaq afterwards wore 32. Um, and the, I mean, the, I was just kind of like going through it and looking at other numbers as well that have had consistently great players, just random numbers. And uh, so 32 is obviously one of them. Uh, number 33. Uh, I think might even have a more historic legacy than number 32. So you have Larry Bird. Um, I know you, you, you love that I just 
kind of found a way to fit him into this conversation. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. it's hilarious that you're going to do a Magic versus Larry competition right off the top <laughs> when literally no one was asking for it, but continue. No, I mean, 33, you've got Bird, you've got Patrick Ewing, you've got Scottie Pippen. So going back to the whole uh, the, the, the MJ conversation from before, Scottie, all-timer, and you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, arguably the best player of all time, some might say, or at least the most underrated great player of all time. So... Uh, Thirty-three has uh, also some some uh, some great players have worn that number. Um, another one, number six, LeBron James wore it uh, in Miami. His four seasons there: Julia Serving, uh, Bill Russell, obviously was the first, and then uh, who can forget Nick Young when he was on the Warriors and Lance Stevenson when he was on the <laughs> Lakers? He also wore number six for those years. Yeah, so Sam, just for some background here, I think that with the numbers thing, there's a couple different influences. First of all, a lot of guys, especially way back in the day, would just sort of get randomly assigned numbers as high school players and stick with that as they were kind of coming through the ranks. And uh, obviously in more modern times, I think that there was more ability to decide what number you would wear. And a lot of guys would just mimic their favorite players. So when it comes to 32, Michael kind of hit it. Magic Johnson is probably the most famous number 32 of all time. And a lot of people who came after Magic wore 32 because Magic wore 32. It's not necessarily that they wanted to be like him. It was just that he was such, you know, a big and important figure, uh, you know, within the NBA. Also on numbers, a lot of times, I don't know if this was true for you too, Michael, but a lot of times didn't the big guys get the 50s and the 40s and then maybe the the forwards were in like the, the 30s or 20s and then the the point guards or lower numbers. I mean, did you have that same kind of a, a gradation when you were growing up? Yeah, more or less, I would say. Yeah, specifically like like the number eleven. Like you're gonna be a point guard if you wear number eleven. Just a fast right. number. And, and like in American football, Sam, uh, it, it's more rigid in terms of which numbers. Uh, you know, the higher numbers go to linemen, and you know, middle numbers go to linebackers. Smaller numbers go to the smaller, quicker players like Michael's describing. So in general, when I was a kid growing up, it was cooler to have a lower number. You didn't want to have a number in the 40s or 50s. That just meant you sucked, basically. And you were, <laughs> your job was to like, go out there and foul people and do the rebounding. And, uh, you know, and anything that was like over 50 was super weird. Um, and that's why a guy like Dennis Rodman, uh, you know, took 91 because it was like the most out there number of all time at that point. And it's just his way of being completely different, right? Um, I would also say another factor here is the retired number factor. Because uh, like Michael's mentioning, there's a lot of people who want to have 33, a lot of people who want to have 32. And that can have a a trickle-down effect. Like with Shaq, when he got to the Lakers, he couldn't have 32 because that was Magic. And he couldn't have 33 because that was Kareem. So you're talking about a top 10 all-time player needing to settle for his third choice of a number. And that's why he goes to 34 in kind of like a spillover manner. So that's wound up being an issue, especially for certain franchises, like with the Celtics, they've got a ton of retired numbers. Uh, and, and the Lakers have a ton of retired numbers. Randomly, the Blazers have way too many retired numbers. It's so bad, they actually retired two different people with the number 30, um, even though neither one of them is you know really regarded as like a Hall of Fame uh, caliber player. So uh, that also influences guys' numbers choices. But I think in the modern era, uh, you might have overlooked number zero, uh, Michael. Hasn't that become kind of fashionable with guys like Westbrook, Lillard? I mean, I feel like there was a real movement. And again, that used to be the least cool number of all. Getting double zero was almost worse than getting 50 or 55. I mean, that was just like, you know, you're... Uh, a Kevin Duckworth style center, 
Um, you know, you're never getting the ball past you. And then that just kind of flipped on its head, uh, I think, with Westbrook. And he he launched this whole wave of guys wearing number zero. Yeah, um, Gilbert Arenas before him. Oh, yes. I mean, his nickname was uh, Special Agent Zero, Double Zero, I think. That's, what was that's his, a good what was his nickname. <laughs> no, you got it, Agent Zero. That's a great fact check by you. Um, Hibachi, you know, Hibachi, yeah. Um, yeah, Gilbert Arenas, uh, Avery Bradley, Double Zero, just kind of no personality whatsoever, but uh, really rocking it hard. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, we don't we don't need to overthink this though. Twenty three, no. it's not even just a Jordan thing. I mean, I think you know just the the impact of LeBron wearing it, kind of carrying on that legacy. I mean, I remember in high school that was the most coveted number, period. Right? It didn't translate to soccer or other sports, but within basketball, you always wanted to be twenty three, right? Yeah, and I mean, should we even go over? I don't know if they went over it in the doc in the first two episodes, but why Michael Jordan wears twenty three? I think that's one of the most legendary stories origin stories in like basketball or professional sports history i don't even know if we need to cover it here but well lay it lay it out let's do it yeah i mean he his brother wore number 45 jordan eventually did wear number 45 and so he didn't the, the way to honor him was to basically cut the number in half and 23 is not technically half of 45 but it's close enough um and that is why uh michael jordan wore number 23 I mean, I think the three has just a nice feel to it, too, doesn't it? I mean, I think that's part of the with with the 32 and the 23 and the 33. I mean, all of it. I think three is like a lot of people's lucky numbers. So I think that that probably factored into some level with these guys original decisions. Right. It's just it's just less clunky. Anything in the 40s is clunky. You don't want a 40. You know, you don't want to be Kevin Willis. It's just. Ugh. No. Um, who did did Dennis Rodman ever wear 73 or am I making that up? Oh, what? Did he wear it with the Mavericks? I want to say he had it on with the Spurs, but I could be totally off base. He could have had it with the Mavericks, too. For some reason, I'm thinking that he had 73 at some point in his career. We can look it up and come back to this. but uh, I'm looking it up right now. So I was we are both wrong. He had 73 with the Lakers. Wow. Okay. What a legend. And, and he had 70 with the Mavericks. Yeah. And well, that's another <laughs> thing, too. I don't know how you feel about Luca with 77. Are you pro uh, pro 77 or anti? Because when he first did it, I was like, huh, I wonder if he's going to regret this, you know, because he really has the potential to be the best player in basketball during his prime, right? It's on the table for him. Once Giannis ages out a little bit, he could be the face of the NBA. And it's basically the weirdest number ever considered by a player who was the face of the NBA by like a <laughs> long shot, right? I mean, if you go back to Russell, uh, he, by the way, another number six for Russell, you know, uh, Magic, Bird, Dr. J, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's no one approaching 77 territory. You could add up all those numbers together and they barely reach 77. 77. So some all time, I, I think we're going to move on right after this because it's a good kind of uh, uh bow on the su- the subject but uh andre bargnani wore 77 with the new york knicks <laughs> this is what i'm saying michael this is what i'm saying this is if he's doing it as a tribute to bargnani we're really screwed no he's definitely not doing that <laughs> let's hope i just hope that luca has a mid-career jersey number switch a la michael jordan uh going to 45 when he came back initially a la LeBron's 23 to 6 that you mentioned, a la Kobe's 8 to 24, because I think he just whiffed on 77, man. I, I think that was just a really poorly d- thought out plan. I think he needed to go a different direction. 
Um, so, and, and just unrelated to that, but just final jersey number notes here. The other interesting thing I've always thought um, with regard to Jordan is he famously wore number 12 one time with no name on the back because someone stole his jersey out of his uh, locker. So there is like basketball cards floating around with Jordan as number 12. I think they actually sold the number 12 Jordan jersey. Um, uh, Mitchell and Ness did for a while there on NBA store. Maybe you can still go out there and find it. So that that's like a trivia question, uh, Sam, is, you know, which numbers did Jordan wear during his career? Most people can get 23 and 45. A lot of people forget 12, which again happens to be like a little bit more than half of 23. So it's actually pretty clean there. Uh, on top of that, there's also the USA basketball jersey numbers thing. And I always wondered how this worked, Michael, because like it seemed like so Jordan wore number nine for USA basketball. Most of the guys wore pretty small numbers. I think Magic's number was like 14 or 15. So none of the guys got their regular jersey numbers. And then when you go to like the, the uh, tra- uh, practice tryouts for USA basketball, they'll actually have guys all the way numbered up into the 50s and 60s and 70s with like really weird jersey numbers. Um, so I was wondering like, is lower better? And if lower is better, why isn't Jordan, you know, trying to be number one? Like what is the rhyme or reason to the numbering going on for USA basketball? I've never understood that. I have not either. I, I've just brought up, I do have a, uh, a Michael Jordan t-shirt that is uh, team USA. One of my favorite t-shirts, number nine. It's great. Um, I'm looking at the jerseys right numbers right now for for Team USA, the Dream Team, and the lowest number is Christian Leitner, number four. So I have no oh. idea what's going on here. Yeah, why do we even give him a number? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's actually pretty funny because uh, there's a clip for, and this isn't like a spoiler, but in the Last Dance, they talk about um, how they had a rivalry with Tony Kukoc and the Croatian team during the 92 Olympics. Mm-hmm. And Jordan is, uh, you know, describing how they really tried to make it difficult for Tony Kukoc. And, and at the end, he's like, just kind of as a toss away line, he's like, well, he did have to go against 11, 11 of the best NBA players in the world, like leaving out the fact that, you know, Leitner is <laughs> basically just like not even on the team in Jordan's mind. I, I always thought that was pretty funny. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Um, all right, we have another question here, another light question, and this one's from Keegan. He wrote in a while ago, but he says, first time writing in, long time listener. With my junior year track season being canceled by the coronavirus, I thought of a question for you guys. Using current NBA players, please create a track team to compete in the Olympics. 
the USA track team is on a strike, so we must resort to the NBA. Now, in his uh, hypothetical world here, he says, choose a player for shot put, high jump, the mile, the 4x100 relay, the 400 meter run, etc. He wants to know which players we would pair with each event. So Michael, take this one any direction that you want to. And Keegan, please go gentle on us. You're probably going to know more about track than we do. Actually, maybe Michael's a track expert. I have no idea. I am uh, not. You, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Points for your honesty, Michael. Where do you want to start? So I actually wrote a story last year for SB Nation during the playoffs about Ben Simmons and why I thought that he was the fastest player in the NBA, maybe one of the fastest players in the history of the league. And obviously, it's it's really difficult to measure something like that and, and go back in time and try to find, or I don't even know how you would quantify speed. And so I talked to um, a biomechanist and a physiologist uh, about Ben Simmons and about how fast he runs. And I got a little bit of data, tracking data from the NBA that was provided to me that, that measured out his top speed. So for Ben Simmons, I would I would definitely pick him for the 400. And the reason why is because what I learned researching that story was that it is almost impossible for any NBA player to achieve their fastest speed on an NBA court. They just don't have the runway to get up to speed and get as fast as po- they possibly can run. And so when uh you know when this scientist looked at Ben Simmons and I told him the top speed he kind of projected out what he thought Ben Simmons would be able to run if he were on a track and it, I I'm going off memory but I think it was like it wasn't it wasn't as fast as Usain Bolt or anything like that but it was it was like an Olympic caliber speed like he could be an Olympic track runner so well, can I ask you one question so I understand I, I'm with you on the 400. I think he's just got the body and the strength and the form that he could be a really just a monster 400 runner. Yeah. I'm wondering, though, on a shorter track, like a 100-meter dash, and, and put aside the mechanics part of it. Let's get into the mental side of it. I think the most underrated thing about the 100-meter dash that when we look at it is just the pressure, you know? Everyone oh, is watching sure. that event every single time. And the fact that Usain Bolt would always deliver in those moments – was amazing. And people want to talk about his stride length. They want to talk about his training program and everything else. But the mental toughness, even if he gets slow out of the block, to just be there ready to show up, ready to go and just do it in front of everyone. And, and sometimes he's taunting people, jogging backwards and everything else was nuts, man. I mean, I have Usain Bolt very high on my all-time athletes list in terms of enjoyable to watch. Is Simmons, does he have the personality to be a 100-meter runner? Am I being, am I reaching here? If he's afraid to shoot a jumper in front of 20,000 people, <laughs> is he going to be able to hold up in, uh, you know, in front of 80K uh, at an Olympics? What do you think? No, hey, I'm kind of with you. That's why I have him for the 400. Like I want to, he, he needs time to uh, rev up and potentially, you know, if he makes a mistake out the block, because that's really what the 100 is. Like it's one right at the start usually i think that's what a lot of um runners say uh so i kind of agree uh, i don't know if if he if he like started for whatever reason a split second next after and delay from the guy next to him if he would you know let his gaze go to that runner and, and lose focus i don't know but if i'm going with someone for the 400 i'm going with ben simmons 
I, I really like that pick. All right, run through. What about these uh, these you know sturdier events, for lack of a better phrase, like shot put uh, or discus or something like that? You have any <laughs> nominations for those? I mean, for shot put. It was. The, I mean, that was probably the easiest. I think for me, that's the first one I filled out. I, it's I'm Zion, going, right? Yeah. It's, no, it's not Zion. I'm going what? with. I'm going with uh, Stephen Adams, because wait not for only, shot put, dude. Stephen. First of all, I'm pretty positive that his sister is an Olympian shot putter. Okay, hold on though. Correct me if I'm wrong. So shot put, don't you have to be short and stubby and like just get underneath that shot and like power through it? Like isn't like center of no. gravity isn't that important? <laughs> I am not a shot put coach. I know next to nothing about shot put. Every time I watch shot put, the people are not necessarily short. They are just absolute mm. monsters is how mm. I would describe them. So I'm going I always, I'm, I always thought like the shot putters that's like they were sumo wrestlers just on their days off. Like that was my understanding. <laughs> like there's a lot of overlap in body type between shot putters and sumo wrestlers. No, if that's the case then Zion sure, then that's a great pick. I assume that Zion is the guy that you have then. Well, so he, for a shot put, I actually think Steven Adams, I mean he has got crazy core man strength, right? I mean mm-hmm. everybody says that about him. Would he be better for discus where you're doing the spinning thing and then it's just like you're just trying to like whip your, you know, you're using your power in a slightly different manner? Uh, Is that possible? Because I feel like shot put, it's just always those big guys and they chalk up their necks, you know, and they've got their elbows and they're just like, ah. I, I, sh- sure, yeah, that's the sound that they make. I, <laughs> I, I could not. Uh, I just couldn't imagine him competing in a shot put competition and then losing. Like I, I couldn't see it in my head. Like he's throwing that ball very, very far. Uh, what about high jump? High jumps, like I feel like there's a lot of overlap. I don't you think DeAndre Jordan in his prime would have been Ooh. an all-time high jumper. Ooh, yeah. Because um, you want to be like long and skinny and lanky, and you have to be like somewhat. I mean, you have to be very coordinated in your run up, but you also have to have the 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 bend in your back and everything. Um, I feel like, yeah, I think DeAndre might be too tall for it. Like, mm. I don't. Again, we're talking as two people who know very little <laughs> about the mechanics of track and field. It's not stopping us in any way. Not at all. Um, I basically was just looking at guys who, you know, are competitive in a dunk contest situation, just people who have high vertical leaps. Oh, and so you're so thinking like Levine or something? I went with, Levine would be a good choice. I went with Derek Jones Jr. Just because oh, yeah. he just gets off the ground. Like he, he elevates better than anyone, I think, in basketball. And so I could Man, see him not having any difficulty. That's hilarious and pathetic for me because I actually wrote that in my dunk contest preview how he has a high <laughs> jumper's body. And then you said it and I was like, brilliant observation, Michael. And then I was like, God, that was like <laughs> literally two months ago. I wrote that exact same thing in print. Um, that's a bad sign. All right. Any other favorites here for like 100? I mean, the 100 is the event everybody cares about. Who are we putting in the 100 race? I mean, if, if Wall was healthy, would he get in? I think Wall has to get in. I have De'Aaron Fox written down here. For sure. For sure. Um, look, I have LeBron just because... Wow, really? He's so fast, man. He's so fast. and Is it quickness lo- or is it speed or both? I think that when you just combine his stride with the, like, his bot... It's so weird when you... Uh, Think about why people are faster than other people. Um, 
And I, 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 you sound so stoned right now. I mean, no offense. No, kids out there, don't take drugs, please. But Michael, you sound a high right now. No, if anyone wants to go and read the story I wrote about Ben Simmons, which I, I can't really get into all the details here because, yeah, I will, I will sound like I'm inebriated. But there's just a lot of technical jargon about why people are faster than other people and what bodies are inherently at an advantage and, and at a disadvantage. And it's why Ben Simmons is, uh, he's just built to be fast, despite being so tall. Uh, and LeBron is in that exact same uh, same category. So, I, I mean, whenever you watch LeBron at full speed, like, whether it be a chase down block or whatever, like, you know he's going to get there in time. He's just got this closing speed. So if you just tell him, hey, pr- imagine that, you know, after 100 meters, you're going to block someone's shot off the backboard, like... I just, who's going to beat LeBron? <laughs> I just yeah. I can't see it happening. I hear you. I mean, my only concern would be the age factor because I think that he is he is slower now than he was. I think like 2012, 13 LeBron, if he had wanted to be a track star, oh, yeah. there was like multiple events that he could have been really, really good at. Um, and that would have been fun to watch. Um, do we have any events for Luca? I mentioned him earlier, or is he just off the track and field team <laughs> entirely? I mean, with some of these star level players, I wonder. Oh, and also while we're talking about just sort of like freaks in general, I mean, what about Giannis? I mean, are, are, would you say yeah. Giannis? He's on my there, list. I mean, he's a triple jumper, right? The way he Euro steps, I think that's his event, or maybe even a long jumper. Yeah, my four by 100 team for the relay was actually Fox, Giannis, Pascal Siakam, and LeBron. Wow. Siakam's got kind of a gangly stride, though, Michael. He might be wasting too much kinetic energy. I, you know, I'm a I'm a biomechanist, you know? I, I know all these things. Yeah, I know. Now, who sounds high right now? Um, <laughs> he. <laughs> I'm just thinking about, like, Siakam when there'll be, like, a defensive rebound situation. Kyle Lowry gets the rebound, and then he just, like— turns and flicks his wrist and Siakam is somehow already under the opposite basket that's just and he's like out of the camera's view uh I just think he's he's low-key extremely fast and he's got the long legs so had to put him there I just want to be like Mike okay that's all it is uh just following in your footsteps hey I have another candidate uh Kawhi Leonard I maybe he's the discus thrower (laughs) I think maybe he's the discus thrower because he, like, I watched him do, you know, a, a modified version of, like, pulling a sled um, uh, during training camp last year where basically, like, they just had a whole bunch of weight behind him and they just wanted to, like, basically test his legs. How strong could he move as he was pulling all this weight? And it was hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And he would, I mean, if if anyone is needed to, like, move a car off of somebody trapped underneath it, I would nominate Kawhi Leonard pretty high on that list in the NBA in terms of guys who would be able to do it. It might be a little bit deceptive, but I think that guy's got some crazy core strength. So I don't know if it's discus or shot put where he's going to be able to, like, make that happen. Um, you know, and, and either one of those events is very taxing, so, you know, he can have a day off whenever he wants it. But um, I think he might be in that mix. I like Kawhi for the discus. It, 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 I, like, it seems like a, a sport or an event that just requires a lot of technical precision. And like, if you gave him tape to study for a few weeks and you let him just get out there with the discus and you had someone just throwing him, giving him discus just to, to, to practice, uh, I, I'm sure he could get it down and be ridiculously good at it because, as you said, he's he's like low key just i don't think he has like one percent body fat um and anywhere in his body composition so 
He's absurd. Uh, the, real quick, the last event that I think is really fascinating would be the mile. Um, oh, did you okay. have did, did you have any guys that kind of popped off your, at the top of your head for that one? No, but I was thinking with guys like Simmons and LeBron where there is a, a real level of speed. I'm not sure that they have the longer term distance speed, right? Like I think the 400 makes a lot of sense for both those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're kind of that middle distance or I don't even know if that's considered middle distance, but they're in like that kind of groove. Whereas I think it would be a different body type, maybe more like a Kyrie Irving to do the mile. Um, you know, somebody who's like light and peppy and just kind of glides across the, uh, you know, glides across the pavement. What do you think? That's good. I thought of players who, you know, we can track this this sort of stuff. <laughs> Actually, on, uh... you, you know, you know who has the body type for a miler is Trey Young because he weighs about a buck twenty. Sure. Yeah, he's a plastic bag just floating around the the track. Um, I like that one. I, yeah, I have Patty Mills here. Um, Patty Mills running the mile. Uh, CJ McCollum. I mean, we can, as I was about to say, we can track this sort of stuff on NBA.com where, you know, they, they let us know which players run the fastest and then which players also accumulate the most miles per game and then throughout the entire season. And CJ McCollum, Jimmy Butler, Patty Mills, these guys are always scrambling around. And then another one uh, that I could just imagine dominating this event is jj reddick <laughs> just kind of like you let him go and he's just not stopping and he's got this perfect stride and this, yeah, he's the yeah. marathoner though right i mean he's the the guy yeah who that's goes and probably goes and better goes. yeah exactly yeah um i now that i'm thinking back to the the whole shot put question are we sure andre drummond and enos Cantor? aren't already shot putters don't they both kind of look like professional shot putters and i realize there's some correlation with the sumo wrestler analogy i made earlier but i feel like those guys are in this convo too yeah those are good ones um you can throw almost any center i guess in the discussion (laughs) and he's gonna throw a small ball really far uh what about Jokic? Jokic kind of seems like a shot putter Jokic, he could be. I, I also would imagine, like, are, do, are we sure that he's, like, he's, like, basketball strong, but I don't know if he's, <laughs> wow, like, practically you're strong. Him, you're calling him a wimp, huh? You don't think he's got enough tone definition to his muscles? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't. I've seen him with his shirt off, so uh, I can speak from my personal experience that he does not have uh, a lot of tone in his upper body. Um, okay, here's another random one. Okay. Uh, the javelin. Why do I feel like Myers Leonard, who's absolutely just jacked, <laughs> would be incredible at the javelin? What do you think? Isn't his? I don't know if it's his nickname or just the emoji he always uses for everything, but he always uses like a hammer. So maybe like, oh, yeah. is the hammer throw? Is that something in the Olympics, oh. or am I just making that up? Well, it was probably the original Olympics, like four thousand years ago. I'm not <laughs> sure if it's a modern Olympic event, but I think he could handle the javelin. Um, can I have a just a moment here? to do some back in my day, uh, you know, the world was better boomer talk. Please. I really think in the early 90s, that Dan versus Dave rivalry for the decathlon was just a great time to be alive. I mean, that was just a phenomenal era. I'm not sure how long it lasted. I think it kind of fizzled out and didn't really work. But like putting the decathlon up there on a pedestal and being like, this is the pinnacle of human achievement. You've got to be able to handle every single athletic event. That's who the real, true best athletes are. And again, this is like pure Nike propaganda, like coming back from my childhood. I loved Dan versus Dave. That was amazing. So if we're going to try to say the best overall athletes in the NBA, and it's going to be translating to 
the decathlon events where you do have to have a combination of speed, endurance, strength, agility. I mean, I think at some point you're like jumping over water traps. I mean, it's almost like an obstacle course for some of these events that they're doing. Who do you take in like your dream field of decathlon participants? And then who is your favorite to win it? Uh, this is, we talked a little bit about this before. Um, I mean, I hate like continuously resorting to LeBron for every answer, but (laughs) I I don't blame you for it. It's hard to bet against him. No, I mean, obviously we know what he does on a basketball court and he is not as athletic as you said, uh, as he has been in his career now, he's like 35 years old. So that's perfectly understandable. Um, but he's still just a total freak and he always posts these videos on Instagram in the off season of himself at 4am getting on treadmills. He's got the oxygen mask over his face and he's just sprinting, um, at a speed and a rate that would make me pass out in about 25 seconds. And he's doing it for like an hour. Um, so I just, I just don't see anyone like beating him, uh, in just pure, athletic event uh i think like there's no it's not a coincidence that we have lebron here and then also Giannis is, is again like that's someone who i just he's just a freak athlete he's one of the best athletes in the world and this is an athletic competition it doesn't necessarily require hand-eye coordination for a lot of these events and i just don't know how many people could beat those guys i think it's those two and i think it's simmons and i think it's westbrook i think that's my top four and I, Westbrook's got a little bit of a body type, but just the motor factor, he can get off the ground still. I mean, obviously, you'd prefer to have young Westbrook. I think young Westbrook would have a real chance against basically anyone. Um, but, I mean, just to recap, the decathlon events are 100 meters, long jump, shot put, high jump, 400 meters, and then 110 hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, 1,500 meters. I mean, it is hard to beat LeBron and Giannis in terms of strength, quickness, and power uh, on all those events because there is, like, you know, there is a real slant there towards the power side with discus, pole vault, and javelin. Um, I hey, think those I are the qu- top four. Real quick, like, is there any reason why neither of us have said Kevin Durant? Like, if if Kevin Durant never tore his Achilles, would you would you think about him for any of these events? Because he never crossed well, my mind at all. I mean, the famous story is that he couldn't bench press well, 185 pounds during the sure. pre-draft workout, and I think he's gotten a little stronger since then, but I think that he's out. You want to talk about guys who are not discus throwers or shot putters? <laughs> Kevin Durant is out for the shot put. There's no doubt. I think that he, I mean, end-to-end speed isn't really his thing. He's more of a precision and technique guy, right? Um, as opposed to like pure speed. Or, or pure crazy athleticism. Obviously, he's very athletic, but it's not the, the freakish stuff. Um, you know, I I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, there's, he's not the only star that we haven't mentioned, though. I mean, we went pretty light on Kawhi. Uh, certainly, your guy James Harden did not come up even once. <laughs> I was about to say. I thought about throwing his name in the ring for the decathlon, but I know you would probably throw your headphones against the wall, so I didn't even bother. Yeah, competitive eating is not one of the ten events. Uh, <laughs> I kid. Completely joking, obviously. Um, Keegan, as you can tell, that was a phenomenal question. Thank you so much for it. And we want to hear all the Open Floor Globe nominations too, because I'm sure there's people out there, Michael, who are sitting there and just screaming, saying, how did you forget this guy? So let us know who we forget, uh, forgot. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Maybe a healthy Victor Oladipo could factor in here to a few events too, Michael. Maybe we should have uh, That's a good thought one. about him. All right, here's a question. 
uh, from Luke from Leicester, UK. He says, I'm really enjoying that you're keeping up the content during these times. The pod I just listened to, you guys were answering a question about which older players would thrive in today's environment, and you forgot Bill Lambeer. Uh, I think he's looking at the uh, the stretch forward aspect. Uh, Luke continues, now the standard reversal would be which players of today would thrive in the past, but let's go ahead and twist that. Which players of today would be worse in the 1980s or 90s? As an example, what about Steph Curry? Would he have the same impact if his long-distance shooting was frowned upon by coaches who couldn't quite wrap their head around three being greater than two? Does he wind up becoming a more pass-oriented player? And what about Kristaps Porzingis? Is he doomed to becoming an inefficient post player his whole career? I'm really interested in your thoughts. That's a great question from Luke. Michael, what do you think? I think this is a really good question. Um Kristaps Porzingis is a really interesting uh, example here, just as someone who, uh, you know, the three-point line wasn't what it was, so you're taking away a huge chunk of his uh, his ability and his advantages. Um, he's not a particularly skilled low-post player, so I think he would have a little bit of difficulty. He's also not the strongest big man, so... Um, I think you're really cutting off a lot of his strengths if you go back an era. Um, I think that, you know, I don't know if these guys would be worse per se because, you know, they're all really, really talented players. But the guys who are kind of like in the the Giannis, Simmons, and even Zion, I, I wonder just them playing in a much more physical, more cramped like era where, you know, they can't access the mid-range and sort of need to put their head down and bulldoze through a pile of bodies. Like would they simply just develop their post game in that time or dominate in a different way or would they really suffer not having the spacing and the other advantages that they have now around them? Like what do you think about those guys? Yeah, I mean, I think Luke hit on some archetypes here that are pretty important. So first of all, I think if you've got big guys who are almost entirely stretch big guys but they're not at all interior threats whatsoever those guys are going to struggle because the coaches are not going to trust them whatsoever they're going to be considered soft they're never even going to see the court right they're going to have to earn their touches down on the block and and have some level of technique and and post up turnarounds footwork and all that stuff and so there there's going to be a lot of diamonds in the rough who just never get found right because they don't fit the conception of what a big guy was supposed to be like, you know, a, a big, tough interior force, big rebounding numbers, uh, and everything else. I think the other players who would suffer, Steph Curry's a good example. Now, would he be able to convince his coaches of the power of the three-pointer? It's possible. But I think guys like Trey Young, who aren't quite as good of shooters as Steph Curry, but they're really reliant upon the three-point ball and are doing it in huge volume, those are the guys who are not going to make the cut, right? And especially if they're not, if they're able to be hand-checked and bullied and they're going against bigger players and every time they go in the paint, they're getting laid out. I think the, you know, for lack of a better term, this is not personal towards Trey, but the pipsqueak point guards would have a hard time, <laughs> uh, especially in the playoffs. And we're going to get some of that during the course of the last dance and just the, vi- the, the vicious, brutal, punishing style of that era. Uh, there's a lot of guys in today's NBA who are phenomenal players, uh, ball handlers, creative off the dribble, you know, kind of light, uh, uh, pesky type guys who have just different careers at that point. Uh, the other archetype that he didn't mention that I thought of, Michael, is what about the 3 and D guy? Like if all of your value is coming from standing in the corner on offense and stretching the court as a three-point shooter, 
but the style of play just does not allow for that. Are you still uh, an impact player for your team or do you get kind of forgotten about? And I think we glamorize in today's uh, NBA a lot, probably starting with Shane Battier, right? Like that glue guy, that three and D guy, all the Spurs, Mm -hmm. the Bowens of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a long lineage of those guys, but that lineage doesn't trace back really, uh, you know, to the eighties. I mean, there's guys who are obviously defensive stoppers, like the Michael Coopers of the world, but that three and D idea is a fairly modern invention. Are there guys who maybe get less attention back then and, and less, you know, pay, and they're, they're less targeted by championship teams just because the three part of it wasn't so important. I think that's probably a fair archetype to, to say that applies here as well. One of the players who really pops in my head who's not necessarily a 3 and D guy, but Clay Thompson and what he would look like if he's not just allowed to go bombs away from the outside, if there's not you know set plays in the offense where he's coming off a screen for a three-pointer every other possession. Um, obviously, he has the size and everything to get shots off in the mid-range, and you could post him up a little bit, but he also doesn't have the handle or the vision to play make and make his teammates around him better. So I do wonder what his role would look like. And I think he's obviously a great, 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 great player for a lot of reasons, and he's very physical and everything, and he would not really... Uh, he would be able to handle himself on the defensive end for sure. But offensively, I just wonder what his role would be on a good team. Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. All right, we got two more quick ones here, Michael. First of all, Ryan from Toronto wanted the opposite conversation. He wanted to know uh, which guys from today's NBA would be better than they are currently in the past NBA. And I think he mentioned Andre Drummond as a a post-presence type of player who might have been more valued back in the 80s. Um, So what do you think, Michael? Is there a certain guy? I mean, I think that Drummond makes a lot of sense because... You know, guys like Moses Malone were able to ride the double-double numbers and and uh, the big rebounding numbers to MVP awards and a lot of attention 40 years ago, uh, whereas a guy like Drummond is being traded for peanuts at the trade deadline because nobody wants to pay him, right? I mean, that's a big philosophical shift in the league. Are there other players who you think uh, deserve to be on this list quickly? Yeah, I think that just talking about archetypes, like I, I struggled to really think of too many beyond the big men and guys who, you know, I, I mentioned him earlier for the shot, but, but like someone like Steven Adams, uh, like in a league where like post defense is so critical and being able to guard a dominant big man one-on-one without help because of just rule changes and everything like that, uh, his value just, you know, goes through the roof. So I think a player like Steven Adams, who you could occasionally even throw the ball to, and he can hit this little short little baby hook over his left shoulder every now and again. Uh, I think his value goes up. Uh, And then, you know, just looking at someone like Joel Embiid, who, you know, he's already a superstar, obviously, but in another era where uh, uh, big men are more just highlighted in a different kind of way, I do wonder what he would look like. And I'm not even saying necessarily that he would be better because obviously the competition would go up around him. But I I do think it would be really interesting to see what he would be uh, in a different era. Yeah, a couple other names I would put out there would be Rudy Gobert. I mean, he would not be forced to defend in space nearly as much as he is, and nobody would care that he has no stretch to his offensive game because that's what they wanted. So Mm -hmm. I think his value would be even higher, and he'd be a big-time defensive player of the year type guy. I mean, you know, Dikembe Mutombo racked him up year after year after year, and I think that would sort of be like Rudy Gobert's lane. Another center that I would would call out is actually Jonas Valanciunas. 
I mean, this guy's got so many old school fakes, you know. Uh, he's got a lot of crafty footwork. When he first came in, I remember seeing him at Summer League and thinking, this guy's going to be an all-star level player. I mean, the guys, his size just don't have that kind of textbook skill. Uh, you know, there was the Sigma fake that he had mastered. Uh, you know, real old school basketball coaches love that thing. And he's just kind of gotten played by the wayside, right? The last, you know, three, four, five years in terms of the development of the game. He's still a really helpful role player and, and he could even be a starter on, on a team in certain situations, but the game has just sort of passed him by to a certain degree. Uh, to me, like Valanciunas could have been an all-star in the 80s and, and maybe even the 90s um, if That's you just kind of tra- transport him back there. Now, the other guys who would really benefit from a tight perspective besides the centers would be the players who are tough shot makers and relying upon the lawn twos, right? Guys who they don't really have the three point range, but because the competition isn't shooting three pointers, their need to be that efficient on the twos isn't quite as high. And so if you can get to the foul line, if you can get your shot off, if you can hit it uh, over multiple defenders, your value is going to increase like, you know, the mid range assassins, right? So I think, uh, you know, especially a guy like DeMar DeRozan would have been way more valuable 20 years ago than he is today. And players like in that mold, I mean, even Chris Middleton really likes to play from the mid range. And I think he would do it even more than uh, he gets to if it was up to him. Um, You know, he's just got a nice soft touch jumper and, and can get it off going either way over each shoulder. I think those types of guys, relatively speaking, would be more valuable and more. Lou Williams. Cel- Lou Williams sure. Sure. Yeah. Shout out, another, shout out. Shout out, Lou Williams. <laughs> that's another good one. I give him actually a lot of credit for adapting, right? Um, yeah. You know, in terms of you know really thriving in this modern NBA because of his ball handling ability and, and shot creation um, and stretching out even to the three point line a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think there's some guys who maybe get snubbed because they're just not three point shooters whatsoever. You know, perimeter players who would have been way better off uh, 20 years ago. All right, Michael, last question. And really, it's just a statement. Cyrus writes and he says, Hi, guys, my name is Cyrus and I'm 10 years old. I just recently started listening to your podcast and I deeply enjoy it. I really appreciate you guys still making episodes, even though there is no basketball to watch. Whenever I'm bored, I quickly turn on an episode. The reason I wrote this email is because I wanted to deeply thank you for continuing the podcast. Cyrus, I just wanted to thank you for that very nice, positive message. We need to hear it, man. This is a tough time. Everybody's going through it in one way or another. Um, you know, it's impacting people across uh, the sports writing and, and sports media industry. Um, and so I, I just thank you for taking the time as a 10-year-old for setting such a great example for all of us in terms of the positivity and the gratitude. And I really appreciated it. That, uh, that email touched me, Cyrus. And uh, thank you very much. I second everything that Ben said, Cyrus. Um, thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for listening. The pleasure is all ours. Absolutely. And guys, keep those emails coming. We got some more we didn't get to today. So we're going to bring those back on Friday's episode, as well as a, a deeper dive into The Last Dance. Michael, I hope both you and your wife really enjoy that show. I can't wait to hear your texts. Uh, hopefully you'll be live texting me tonight <laughs> with your various updates, or maybe even live texting me her takes. I would love to hear that as well. Guys, you can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Give us your thoughts on The Last Dance and everything else that we just talked about today. Find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I'm calling out all those emailers from around the world, Michael, the guys from the UK and Australia, Hong Kong, everywhere else that always send in the great emails. Don't forget, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts too. We'd appreciate you doing that. 
Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter at Ben Golliver. Guys, be sure to subscribe to my Washington Post newsletter. This week's edition is on how Michael Jordan is beating LeBron James at his own game with the last dance. You'll want to dig into that, uh, that, that little bit of a hot take column for you. Uh, hopefully you'll learn something and, and maybe you might agree or disagree with me. Hey, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, man. Yeah.